Good morning and welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Fear Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is my co-host, Bruce Whitaker. Uh, welcome, Bruce. Hey, good morning, everyone. How are you doing, VJ? Good, doing well, thanks. And then here, our special guest today is Meher Amanda. Uh, she is a poet, uh, short story writer, journalist, and educator from Mumbai, India, currently based in New York City. She earned her MFA in fiction from the College of New Rochelle, where she was the founding editor-in-chief of the Canopy Review. She's the author of Busted Models, a uh, chapbook of poems from No Dear uh, magazine, and her work has appeared or is forthcoming in Catapult Magazine, Hobart Pulp, Peach Magazine, Cosmonauts Avenue, Los Angeles Review, and elsewhere. She was nominated for Best New Post 2020 for a poem and, um, and um, Absidarian to Mother's Tongue. She lives in Brooklyn, New York. Welcome, Meher. Thank you for having me. Very excited to be here. Thank you. So let's start the conversation off with um, questions about how you're occupying your days and during the COVID-19 stay-at-home order. Of course, this broadcast is coming to you uh, remotely or from live, not from the studio. You know, Radio for Brooklyn is now doing at-home broadcasting uh, for the audience to listen to, to know. Um, and we can start the conversation with how you're occupying your time in the stay-at-home order. Uh, what you're writing or what you're watching, anything like that, anything that comes up for you? Mm -hmm. uh, I'm actually, I mean, there is the work from home. So there is the actual working that's happening. But aside from that, um, I'm trying to occupy myself as a journalist, trying to write as many for as many publications as I can. And I'm also at my uh, revising the structure stage of my poetry manuscript, uh, which means just laying out the whole manuscript on the floor and looking at uh, narratively, does the structure make sense? Uh, but when I'm not doing that, I am watching a lot of television. I just started watching the new uh, Ryan Murphy show on Netflix, Hollywood. Uh, and I am also watching uh, Mrs. America on Hulu. So yeah, I'm just trying to, you know, both of both of which are vintage, incidentally. But yeah. <laughs> what was that vintage? Yeah, they're like yeah, they're set in like their period fiction shows. They're set oh in. right, right. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And Bruce, how about you? Oh, I'm doing a lot of writing and um, getting some things out for. And I write a lot of poetry as well, and I'm starting to put things together for a manuscript. Um, but I'm also uh, taking part in a lot of the virtual program offerings by institutions here in New York. I watched the uh, latest version of the Apple Plays put on by the public. Uh, Richard Nelson wrote this fascinating Zoom play about a family that he's been writing about for many, many years. Uh, and that aired last week uh, for the public theater. Uh, this coming uh, Wednesday, I'm going to be part of a seminar uh, two seminars actually with Rattlestick Theater about the impact of COVID on our culture and also Signature Theater is offering a fascinating, uh, I'm very much looking forward to a panel discussion with Lynn Nottage and Sharon Salzberg. Uh, the two threads in my life are theater and Buddhism and uh, mindfulness. And so uh, Lynn Nottage, the Pulitzer Prize winning playwright and Sharon Salzberg, probably America's leading um, uh, thinker about compassion practices uh, together in one program is going to be very fascinating. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, Meher, I know you were talking a little bit about 
the process of writing, um, what, what, well, the question was, um, when you teach or share your principal discipline with others, uh, what do you hope listeners will receive from you? You're talking a little bit about how, um, in our pre-interview questions, talking a little bit about how the process of writing is quite selfless, which kind of made me think of when Bruce was talking about compassion practices and things like that. It made me re remember your answer to the question about writing being quite selfless. So if you could expand a little bit on that and what your feelings on about um, what you hope the readers will get from your writing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, uh, when you're write, when you're teaching writing to any group of students, it doesn't have to be uh, public school, doesn't have to be undergraduate, it can be, you know, full-fledged adults, uh, you know, older than you even sometimes. Um, and when you're working with them uh, on writing, you want them to walk away with um, an appreciation for how arbitrary the process is. Uh, there are tools and there are, uh, you know, uh, there are methodologies that you can practice uh, to uh, fine tune your craft. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's there is a there is a reason why writing or literature is not mathematics, is not science. And I'm a completely scientific, rational person, which is why I can say that it's not. Yeah. Uh, it is oftentimes, you know, you can know all the rules in the playbook and you can still not be able to write you know, in the moment. So it's a very arbitrary process. There's a lot of physiological, you know, psychological, emotional uh, factors that come into play uh, when you're working on, you know, the perfect piece, whatever that may be. So every time I teach a class, um, I'm not so much focused on whether, uh, you know, the writers in the class can produce work in that moment. Um, I don't think that immediacy or that urgency is necessary. You don't want to come into a class by upholding that. But I do want my students to walk away with having an appreciation for the process and with an ability to understand what their process looks like. Not everybody's process looks like the same. I know that when I have to get something done and when, you know, it's not working out, a change of space really helps a lot if I you know if I if I supplant myself from where I am and put myself in like it could be a coffee shop or a library even that little shift uh you know changes a lot so that we're talking physiological space so if uh my students can understand what is it that can trigger their writing I'm happy with that um so I think when I walk into a class I am much more focused on process and I'm much more focused on how to get there than to get there immediately um, and which is why I'm obsessed with writing rooms and writing practices and you know uh, finding your family of writers that if you can't write those are the people you turn to um, I know that every time I struggle with fiction there are these five or six writers that I'll immediately google and i'll read their short fiction piece the same piece i've read over and over again and if i'm struggling with a poem there are these like 10 poets i always turn to their poems and i'm just reading rereading their work just to get a sense of you know what are they doing here uh with, with craft so yeah i th those are the practices i sort of encourage in my class over i guess writing now good good so i think i pulled out one or two things from that that I thought were interesting about talking about spaces in society, you know, talking mm -hmm. about like how, at least for the time being, it seems like it's going to be expanding itself to larger than just a small window. It's going to be until, you know, we really put ourselves into a more secure space as a society with this COVID-19. What, what are your thoughts on now, as we start to enter more digital spaces, uh, we can get a conversation going about spaces in society and how 
you know, we have that community now. What, what, what is the impact psychologically you think about having this digital community? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it, what's the pros and cons? And what are some of the things that when you talk about, like, you know, now we have to turn on the computer to be in the digital space, to be in community, be in community, uh, digital spaces and such. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, on one hand, it, it is true, right? When you are a digital only universe, uh, you are in a way exclusive. Uh, you are going to exclude people who do not have internet connection and who may not have a system. Uh, you know, back in the day, a lot of these people could go to public libraries and access um, internet. And now that possibility doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but at the same time, it's also important to consider that even physical spaces can be ableist uh, and not just, you know, uh, ableist for those uh, who are physically disabled, but also uh, uh, for, you know, for people who may not be able to travel, who may not have the money to get on the subway, who may not have, you know, just uh, who may not have that evening to take out of their fully packed schedule to come see you at your to take your workshop or to come see you at a reading. So in that way, there is that uh, it's not for, the digital medium is not necessarily a level playing field, but I think it does in a way it can also include people that haven't felt included by, you know, people who don't live in New York, for instance, uh, and would like to have, you know, come like to go to these New York city events, literary events, but now all of these are happening online and they're free and they can attend from, anywhere you know from idaho if they want to mm -hmm. uh and that is interesting and exciting and who are the people you can reach out to who are the people who are actually interested in the literary community and who can tune in from any other part of say america or even you know north america um uh, and that is interesting and exciting uh but at the same time you know uh, there is that advantage of like growing your community online that you can't necessarily do you always reach a point in you within your actual community where you can't grow anymore so online you can include a lot more people but there's also there's certain things that the online medium just doesn't give you you know being able to sit across the table with someone and discuss writing yes you can do it online but it's just when you're teaching a bigger class, say a lot of people are holding teaching workshops online. When you're doing that online, it's really hard to hear from your students because you just don't have the time. Uh, you can do that in a class where you can just call on people to respond to you, but online, there's just too many windows going on. You want to minimize that level of interaction and you just want to get things done. So I think it's a little, I think clinical as all things digital are, I, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, that's that's definitely, I've been doing a lot of virtual poetry readings and things like that, sitting in on them. And what, uh, it's a double-edged sword, as you say. It increases access. Some of the programs that the theaters I work with were offering, like a playwriting course for lower-income folks in San Diego, exploded online when they could offer it there because people could not physically get to the community center where the course was offered. So when they offered it online, participation exploded but what I find as a participant is that the, um, the the time around the central event when you walk in when you sit down you sit next to somebody you go get a coffee you go out afterward or you talk during a break or you talk to the people running the event all of that circumstantial sort of secondary space is missing from the digital world and that's mm. often where as you were referring to my the real substance of, a, of an event could be there for you. 
Um, mm -hmm. Yes, you're going to hear a poem, but you could have bought that anyway. Um, but it's the people you're running into that cannot be replaced in the digital format. And so finding a mix of access uh, and it's not perfect. Uh, mm -hmm. And also then all that social texture that these events can offer. Um, that's going to be our challenge going forward because I think virtual events are here for, for good. They're, they're working very well. They're popular. And for many artists and many institutions, I think it's going to be critical to their success moving forward. Absolutely. Yeah. I also have a quote that uh, there's variations on this quote have been circulating a lot since the pandemic. Uh, this one's from Aaron Dothi Roy. Um, Historically, pandemics have been forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. Um, this one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data uh, banks and dead ideas, our, de our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. You know, there's a lot of quotes about how the pandemic is going to, you know, be a great realization, a great awakening. And when we talk about kind of opening up these playing fields, but at the same time, bringing with it some possible um, baggage. Uh, what, what are your thoughts about this and about how this can be something we can shed old things that weren't working and and bring about a, a whole new world of, you know, realizations and such? Yeah, I mean, you know, institutionally, um, there's so many setups right now. Um, you know, I, I, I'd like to believe that Arundhati Roy was talking particularly about India, even though her quote is, you know, universal yeah. and can be taken universally. I want to believe that she was talking about India and then having, you know, as an Indian who's come from India, I see India and America in that sense of like, it, are the binaries that sort of exist for me? Like, you know, what was once my home and now what is my home for today? Um, and there's so many systems that you know are failing, like the healthcare system is failing. Mm. You, you know, you go to the public school, the, the teacher knows the DOE is failing. Uh, you know, you go into a hospital, they know, you know, what's going wrong. Um, and I think, uh, and then you have institutional failures, you have any kind of bigotry, you have any kind of, you know, America has a share, India has a share of like bigotry within society. And this is a good time to confront that uh, uh, the kind of, you know, that a pandemic sort of makes all of those very obvious, uh, you know, makes it obvious in a way that, for example, for education that is being moved online, who is that education accessible to in it? Who isn't, uh, right? And that question itself talks about like economic level playing field. Like who is, you know, who are even within the public school system, who has the economics to be a part of it and who does not. Um, and then the healthcare system, as we know, is already under severe duress because of everything that's happening. Um, and this would be a good time for administrations to not dwell on, uh, you know, the bigotry or uh, the elements of, of fractionalism that drives their politics, but to rather focus on uh, institutional revamps, right? How can we, you know, uh, how can we improve upon what we have? How can we radicalize what we have to completely overhaul the system uh, and to completely reimagine the system where if such a disaster were to strike in the future, 
such uh, a you know such a complete crumbling block wouldn't happen uh like from my vantage point i don't see that happening in either of the countries but it's a good thing to live by also as an individual i think uh how can i also reimagine my own life can i be more minimalist can i be less of a what are the things that i have that i have accumulated that i don't need um i think when you have a situation like that when everything feels very where everything feels very vulnerable i think it's a good time to look at your own life and see you know what's working and what's not what are the things that i need what are the things that i don't need what are the friendships that i need and what are the friendships that i don't need uh and you know i i think that's a good practice to to have going forward i think any i think any system that doesn't overhaul itself after this is has set itself up for failure is yeah. what i think but yeah. what are what are the obstacles to that overhaul in your view i think you, i we we share your pessimism that some of these opportunities are fully going to be utilized where do you see the obstacles why why can't we on an institutional level not just a personal level mm -hmm. uh make the changes we need to make uh i mean this is, so this is interesting right in the thick of this pandemic with everything going on with the kind of cases that are coming out of new york you know just the uh you know the extent of the disaster that's happened in new york you you still don't hear a lot of people speaking about universal healthcare for instance right uh because you know there is all of these things are governed by power and money um like in india for instance there is a large migrant worker migration that's happening right now um are there are a lot of migrant workers who come from villages and the hinterland to delhi and bombay uh, to all of these urban cities as they in work as daily wage laborers uh to be able to sustain their families and now and often these people live where they work they they live and work on site um and with that work being shut down because of the covid-19 lockdown a lot of them the only option is for them to walk back home so because you know the trains aren't available uh, transportation isn't available because india has currently shut everything down they are having to make this journey on foot because there's no way for them to live uh now indian the indian administration spent money to be able to bring back deserted indians in other countries so stuck you know as you know who may have been traveling because of tourism may have been traveling for work and they've been stuck and the indian administration paid money to bring them back but that level of money is not being spent on making sure that the migrant workers are situated and they are home um so it's about priorities right who are we prioritizing and that doesn't shift in either country you know power and uh power and systemic bias rules our politics i mean there's I, i don't know it's i think it's it's the kind way to say that there the people who run the administration are not very nice people <laughs> they don't care about the people they're serving it might be very naive but you know the more you think about it the more true it feels yeah it feels a lot like the when we're talking about power the people who have consolidated like we're following the money all this kind of thing like they, these are the people who are indoctrinating their followers to viewpoints that are not beneficial to the individuals who hold those viewpoints they're actually beneficial to the people who are you know having all this money or having all this power you know lobbyists and all that are kind of pushing mm -hmm. these viewpoints and they're they're grounding themselves into ideology that is supporting you know those haves 
and and the have-nots are actually supporting the, the those who have at their own at the cost of their own you know um lives or whatever you know like the people who are protesting and i don't think it's it's as significant as as uh as it's being played out to be but it seems like a lot of protests about the um stay-at-home orders and such and, mm-hmm. and this is just to protect their lives i mean you know yeah i mean it's also like we think about uh i know especially in america like everything becomes a partisan issue but even if you weren't to look at that sense i mean you know the big pharma has its hands i know i'm sounding like conspiracy theorist big pharma mm-hmm. but it's true right and big pharma does have its allies on both ends so you don't see uh, the more prominent leaders from either party coming up and saying that maybe maybe there is something to be said about single payer universal healthcare maybe there is something there let's reconsider it let's see how we can make that possible you know maybe it's not as feasible as the crazy guy from vermont puts it but let's look at it you know let's take a system and let's see how can we remix this and how can we make sure that this is sustainable for so that when a future pandemic hits as things happen i mean as randomly and as arbitrarily this happened you know things happen there's been the sars there has been you know uh, the swine flu you've had it before it you you didn't think this would get this bad it did get this bad but i don't see that level of uh, you know commitment to changing the system because you know they've consolidated power um and then you have they've led all these people into believing that things that things have to be in production for them to feel successful so when they say open up america open this up it's interesting you know why no if you tell them hey this could kill you that's you know they nobody nobody would do nobody would do that you think but it's interesting to what level this mentality has taken hold of but, yeah okay. you Go ahead. Well, you, you observe, uh, in, and we were talking a bit earlier and <laughs> preparing for this, how um, you've been surprised how few writers are, uh, I guess, left, left-leaning left activist writers, that this, this kind of uh, point of view of questioning power and so forth is not, a, uh, it's not common in the literary culture uh, that you've seen. Could you elaborate on that? Because I think part of... Where, where we're stuck is this idea that there, is, there isn't really an idea of progress that's being laid out. And literature is one of those places where that could happen. Yeah, I, you know, I think about, I think that power is the great corruptor, right? In any situation. Um, I think that in the literary community, uh, you would be an outlier to be right of center. Like you are, if you ever espouse uh, any anti-liberal views, you do. You are highlighted in the press. Uh, so by that measure, it is safe to assume that most writers are liberal, and the literary world world is liberal at large. Uh, but I think that where they are uh, socially liberal, I think very few are politically radical. Um, very few, I think more poets than fiction writers, I want to believe, are more radical in that sense. They want a better administration. They want a better system. They question authority. Um, and I also think that's because, uh, you know, the more successful writers, um, 
are often being published by these big publishing houses. And then, you know, the money talks in that situation. And so you're always like, uh, you're always skirting the safe line. You know, it's not, um, it's certainly not controversial to have um, a very baseline liberal outlook, you know, uh, to, to say that this is how, uh, you know, this is how much government interference you want in your life and this is how things should be and this is how things should be. I don't think there's anything controversial about that. But when that, um, uh, but that doesn't really ever go into a strong nuanced criticism of the system that's watered from within. Uh, you know, uh, you can change things at the surface, but things have to be changed from within and there's rarely ever that kind of criticism coming in which is why i think i really admire arundhati roy you know because you know she's come up today in that she i think is one of those writers who sort of hit as big as you could right you you know she is well-renowned internationally she's got the booker prize you know um any big publishing house would publish her in her heartbeat she is a, a literary star by all means uh but that, that she's never minced her words because of that status um she has always been forthright she's always been candid she's always been uh you know even i guess uh, even i guess very radical in the way her politics are shaped and to me that's it, that's amazing that there is a writer who despite having that and who, who uses that power to champion you know uh the kind of politics that i i feel we need right now um there are not a lot of writers who do that are there any american or uh american writers you see that would be like her or is there someone close to that role here um, I mean, I would imagine like academics, like Noam Chomsky is always the mm. person, right? Who, you know, who he is like the big grandfather <laughs> of American academia and leftist academia. And he's always been, you know, Cornel West, always been very forthright about the kind of politics that are important and the kind of politics that are required. So many poets. I'm not kidding, but like the poets, young poets, they're, uh, you know, I always see their, read their interviews and um, hear them talk about their communities and their, especially poets of color, their communities and um, their neighborhoods and the way they talk about it and the things they demand of it are very radical. Their poems are radical. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, poetry is a gateway into, I guess, uh, the bigger questions. So uh, to me, that is exciting. That and I think poets also, because like all of us are broke, like we don't have the money. <laughs> nobody's publishing us, nobody's giving us money for poetry. So I guess, <laughs> you know, it makes sense, but. Yeah, I think the next rung in the ladder are playwrights. And there are some interesting critiques coming out, uh, particularly young and writers of color mm -hmm. now uh, about culture and uh, particularly racism and economic development and things that have uh, much more of an activist view um, that has emerged among writers, I think, over the last generation or so. Uh, mm -hmm. A generation ago, you've got a lot of family-oriented problems that are coming up in plays, but now mm -hmm. uh, playwrights are much more outward-looking and mm -hmm. uh, much more vocal as individuals. You know, you they're 
uh, taking stands on things. And, and in some ways, Tony Kushner is almost a public intellectual in, as far as this country would go and, and as a theater figure, which is very, very rare in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a, the, the writers are kind of seeing that, but they don't have the uh, political framework always that, uh, that you're talking about that, that I think is common in a lot of international literature and a lot of international writers. Yeah, I mean, it's also, it's so uh, contingent on who's writing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when uh, when literature was sort of at any given point was sort of, I mean, it still is, but when it's, uh, I guess, dominated by, uh, you know, rich white men, not just poor people, I'm, just, I'm talking about rich white men, there is this very preppy, you know, internalization of narratives, right? This is, it's a very individual narratives and those are the things that sort of develop. But once you open up that space for writers who are from inferior backgrounds, people who've lived in public housing or went to public school who probably, you know, came from disenfranchised neighborhoods, people of color, women, queer people, when you open any space up, there is such radical collectivist idea that comes in because every, every you know, I'm sure that every trans writer, you know, every African-American writer, every Asian-American writer, every, you know, uh, poor writer who was once poor and, you know, somewhere in the Bronx and grew up really disenfranchised by the system, when they enter any literary field, uh, at, even as they're representing themselves, they know the burden of narrative. They know what they're bringing to the community and the genre. Uh, And so they bear such responsibility to every word they write. Like I'm not even, like I'm not the first Indian writer in America. There have been many, you know, there have been countless before me, but even I feel a sense of uh, such responsibility with every word I write. Like, is this, is this true? Is this misappropriative in any way? Is this, you know, can this be, is this ambiguous? Is this arbitrary? Uh, You know, what is the weight of every word we put in? And I think when there is that much significance placed in writing, the writing's always more radical and interesting and asking the bigger questions than, you know, I guess. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that, um, you know, first of all, I just wanna say to listeners, this is the Truth to Power show on Radio Fear Brooklyn. We're here with uh, uh, Meher Amanda as our guest and uh, my co-host Bruce Whitaker. Uh, we're discussing a little bit about why, um, you know, radicalism or, or, or in some ways I think that term is kind of a misnomer. I mean, I think we have to think of a progressive or, or more opened up politics rather than, uh, you know, progressive politics. I, I like that term a little better, right? Would you say progressive rather than radical? Because I think radical has certain... Uh, connotation to it uh, mm-hmm. you know upsetting norms and all that kind of thing but we want to acknowledge the norms that are uh, present right now we just be open our eyes to what's going on in, in the real world as it were uh, but we're here to talk about that and I just want to give you a chance also Amir to read a little bit from your writing uh, to talk a little bit about your practice and and ground ground all these ideas in um, mm-hmm. something a little bit more uh, understandable Um so now you ha- you wrote a one chapbook. Are you reading from that? The chapbook, um, uh, I'm losing the title of it now. Um, uh, Busted Models? models? Yeah, models? I, yeah, I could yeah I could read a poem from Busted Models. Yeah, uh, it's up to you. If you'd like to read from something else, that's also fine. But you can introduce it and 
and tell us what you're reading from and then uh and you can you can read from that whatever you'd like okay uh then maybe i may read a uh new untitled poem if that's okay sure sure um yeah so it's this this poem's a little new and uh i'm still working on it so it's very raw but i am sort of sitting with it and i'm trying to understand where it can go from here so it's very raw and it's very unedited but it's and it's untitled but here it goes godless women walk here they sprint across the yard where shrapnel sits lodged between rocks pretending to be pebble and the grass is dirt brown from the poison of the earth their naked feet turn black from the soot a few yards away a cotton sari has gone to sleep relieved from its baby carrying duties grown moist from the hungering rain soft like the bark of a tree that much like the women has come uprooted truly god's destruction in real time when men turned on each other and the women now unclaimed watched from the kitchen table sang songs to quiet the crying babies well all that is over now another chapter has begun wild vegetation has resumed its place once there were cats and rabbits squirrels could be spotted by the brown of their bushy tails scurrying up trees but like home even they are a memory and the stories whittled down to specific details of bomb and guns and voices like bellowing bullet shots piercing through skin and so much blood now dried and become one with earth towns villages cities drunk on yellowed water and hate somehow still sits in the hearts of the most loyal men well not for long the women caught up and gave up fast this is also a part of history that girls who claim sisters and lady slippers hold close it is truly the fool who entrusted women with memory what a weapon to carry on shoulder to load and fire when the children will inevitably awaken and read poetry whose gods come and dressed and vapid whose men look depressed and whose women grow wild like surprise petals from bedrock let men practice betrayals like claiming god and denouncing practicality thank you thank you beautiful so now um i know you in our, in our intro and our bio and such we told we told the listeners that you did i'm a fan fiction but mm -hmm. your focus and the first reading you read is is in poetry tell us a little bit about what, what uh what do you think? I know we've had this theme kind of coming up in the Truth to Power show a lot about the divide between poetry and fiction and what, what do you think the difference is in the practices and what do you think really maybe which one and what act parts of the brain or what parts of your practice are enlivened in different aspects of uh, fiction versus poetry? Um, so I, I got my MFA in fiction because that was the option. We had fiction and nonfiction in the program. And wow. I kind of consider myself um, a writer who does everything, um, you know, who at least tries to do everything. I mean, I'm a journalist as a nonfiction writer, but I would like to be an essayist. I've written a few. I'd like to write more. I'm not very good at it, but I'd like to be better at it. Um, and I and so I, I graduated in fiction, but... Um, 
I presented a prose poetry thesis because I was very actively working on poetry in my second year of the MFA. And uh, that option to present that was made available to me by my thesis advisor. So I did that. I guess, you know, I, I take both short fiction and poetry very seriously um, together. Uh, and I, you know, I like last night I started working. I, I worked, I wrote a poem and I also started working on a short fiction at two different disparate times of the day because it just made sense. Um, you know, when I, when I look at fiction, I look at narrative. Narrative becomes so important. Uh, you know, what is the story that is being told and how is, how is it being told? Uh, who is it serving? Who is it talking about? Uh, there are all of these questions. Uh, I'm always a character-led uh, fiction writer. Uh, to me, it's very important to get uh, my central protagonists down and understand uh, why they're driving the story. Uh, whereas with poetry, for me, it's all about uh, meaning. It's all about arriving at some answer, however arbitrary and incomplete it is, uh, about asking the question, um, you know, fiction just feels a full-fledged form to be able to hold, uh, you know, to, to hold that kind of responsibility. It's too large uh, to hold that kind of responsibility. Uh, and so to me, poetry always feels a lot more, I guess, uh, you know, it's about immediacy and urgency is what drives my poetry. But I imagine this is different for different writers. Uh, uh, you know, I understand when, uh, like the story that became a short fiction story last night started out as a poem in my head. And then I understood that the what I wanted to say, I had so much to say about this piece and it could go in so many directions that a poem, even if it was the long poem, uh, would not be enough to really arrive at, you know, what was going on in that story uh, from a cultural perspective, from a gender perspective. There's just so much, uh, so much that had to be filled in, so. Can, can we go back to your poem for a moment? I, one of the things that just as a response I loved about it was that it could be about so many places and situations that immediately it evokes. You know, it, it could be about Syria. It could be about, uh, uh, you know, somewhere in, in rural America. It could be in, in Latin America, uh, in the, the countries people are fleeing to come here. Um, where, what, tell us a little bit about the, the genesis of that poem and um, some of the, uh, the objectives you kept in mind as you as you revise it. Yeah, I, I, so I wasn't planning to read that poem today, but I decided to because of the conversation that we were having, um, and I was thinking about uh, again as as women. Uh, you know, who with our agency, I guess we're now claiming our agency in many cultures and in many countries. We're opening up to the idea of, you know, what power we can hold and what the possibilities of that power are. And I'm thinking that any agency that doesn't come with reimagining the system is, you know, what's the point of that agency is the question that I'm, that I'm wanted to ask. Not that it's not important or that it's not essential, but um, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, I'm thinking about as, as people uh, who are, you know, who are, who are grabbing and taking the agency that was owed to us for many, many, many centuries. Um, if we can reimagine the system so that there won't be another us, you know, that, you know, whatever that us means. Um, and I guess that was the whole idea of saying that when I say that, you know, godless women, you know, run here. 
uh, and that idea that you know after there has been death and destruction uh, you know the the whoever are left and whatever death and destruction means it doesn't have to be as grand as you know a full fledged battle it can be whatever however small and however painful and however intimate loss is if you um for me it's always this question that can we come out of it by by reimagining a better system by reimagining uh, a less, I guess, corruptible system, a more, uh, a kinder system that, that, that you know, is less hateful. Uh, and I guess that was the point of this poem in that I really, that, that, so even the closing line, let men practice, uh, you know, uh, let men practice betrayals like claiming God and denouncing practicality. And I think that idea of, you know, uh, holding on to, uh, holding on to the past let people who had power in the past hold on to that you know anybody who to anybody who gains in power um should think about how to share that power equally in a way uh and not thrive off a system that consolidates power and i guess uh that's yeah you so i'm i, I love that you said that that it is universal because there are some of my poems that are very focused uh, and are very with their lens on the community and the culture that it's about. And then there is poetry that's more universal that I think is adaptable to whoever's reading it and for them to imagine the, the context that the poem exists in. And this one is certainly the latter. Yeah, I was uh, very also, I was talking to a friend of mine who writes plays and um, she, she found it very challenging to write a play about what's going on right now. Because as you said, poetry is much more in the moment and can be much more flexible and responsive. Whereas with theater or fiction, you, you have to have characters and structure and narrative and a beginning, middle and end and a, a conflict and a resolution. And all those things that are, are challenging to apply quickly to a, a, an evolving situation. There will be uh, mm -hmm. wonderful work from this period in theater and fiction and other media, but it won't be something that pops up right away. <laughs> Absolutely. It also, like, when you, especially when you fictionalize or even in, uh, I guess, when you're writing a play, if it's not like a nonfiction play, if it's like sort of a built up uh, narrative, I think it just feels unfair to take the present in any direction without fully knowing the extent of how this will unravel. Uh, as a short fiction writer, I hesitate from writing to the present because I just don't know what the scope of this is uh, in terms of loss, in terms of, you know, personal heartbreak. Uh, and so it just feels that how do you, how do you end a story? You know, how do you end a story yeah. about, about the present anymore? Uh, I, you know, I can't even imagine. Well, the, the exception that proves the rule is this uh, Richard Nelson play that the public just put on, uh, the Zoom play, uh, which I encourage everyone to, every writer to look at because it, it shows how you can take a large scale narrative form compared mm. to poetry and capture something of a moment in it and uh, tackle those questions of resolution and character and plot and so forth. But uh, that's, that's an exceptional piece that uh, we'll look forward to the literature of this period and in the centuries to come probably. So. So also I want to say that um, COVID-19 is, a, this is an announcement from Ready for Brooklyn. So I just want to kind of give uh, people a little bit of of a plug for Ready for Brooklyn, uh, the hosting 
uh, is how we, we're coming here live to you on Monday at 8 a.m. Um, COVID-19 is disruptive, disrupting everyone's live right now. And Reefer Brooklyn is no exception. Once you know that we have made every effort to ensure the health and well-being of our hosts, staff, and community at large, we've closed both our studios, canceled live events, and are also doing their uh, best to continue bringing us new original programming by broadcasting live and pre-recording from their home studios or by selecting the best pre-rebroadcasts of their past shows. With uh, most of our radio stream uh, evaporated, we need your help. We realize that we, um, you may be hurting uh, too, but, you can, but if you can afford a small donation, it would go a long way towards helping us stay on the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time or monthly donation by going to radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate, um, where you'll find that there's uh, great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag that you'd like to uh, buy to send your support and say thanks. Um, you can also use your phone to give to RFB Give 5. That's the number 544321. So text, um, uh, the number is 44321. Uh, it only takes uh, a moment and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you uh, are on Amazon, you can go to amazon.com smile and register Ready for Brooklyn as the um, nonprofit you'd like to support. When you do a percentage of your sales, we'll go to RFB. They'll cost you nothing. Don't donation, big or small, whatever you can afford uh, will make a huge difference. We thank you for the bottom of our hearts and and, and uh, listen and with the, wish all listeners health and happiness as we weather the storm together. Thank you so much. Um, so now let's we have about like ten more minutes, 10, 15 more minutes, so we can keep the conversation going, talking a little bit about. Um, Kind of continuing on the thread that we were going on. So I suddenly reloaded. Um, yeah, yeah. So what's coming up for you now? Um, we can talk a little bit about failures and successes. That was one of the questions about what you think uh, a most valuable failure has been so far and how you can view a failure or a success. Uh, so anyone wants to take that up here, you want to start with uh, kind of how we can view failures and successes in this context and how we can kind of um, think about as writers, you know, we're constantly fa facing the, uh, we were talking a little bit about kind of how the successful or unsuccessful writers, this kind of thing, and how we can kind of start to think differently about failure and success. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because I, I remember, I, uh, I think a couple of days back, I put up this, I guess I put it up on Twitter or something, that uh, when you don't come from a rich background if you don't come from money and if you don't come uh and if you don't come with a backup and you don't have a family or support to fall back on uh, and you decide to be a writer you make that choice to fail every single day mm -hmm. and uh when you're writing uh, everything you know you have the story that you've been holding on to for really long and then you sit down to work at it and if you don't manage to execute it that feels like a personal failure uh, when there is this thought tinkering away at your head in your head and you're unable to put that into words that feels like a personal failure and then you know on top of all of that there's also being able to you know whatever you have to do for money whatever you however you work and however you manage to pay your rent and make sure you sustain your bills uh, every time you're not able to take out an hour or two to dedicate to your craft feels like a failure uh, you feel like the more you dedicate yourself to work you feel like you're you're becoming less and less of a writer in that sense and then after all of those like 
systems in place that make it hard for you to write in the first place as well. The fellowships, there's the scholarships, there's the literary journal acceptances, there are these, you know, there is this universe that is not uh, very, you know, the, it feels like there are enough resources, but there are also not. Like if you don't have an MFA, if you don't have a network to fall back on, a community to fall back on, like who are the people you can touch base with? Um, I know that when I, it took me like two years to understand what literary journals are all about and how to uh, fine tune your submission to a particular platform, uh, you know, so as to appeal to their editors. I don't think I still understand it very much, but I at least understand the jargon around it, uh, having helped found a literary journal myself. So I at least understand the language, even if I don't particularly get it every time I'm submitting. Um, and I just, I just think that, uh, you know, there's always this every there's stuff happening every day that makes you feel like you failed in as a writer. I, I, you know, I feel that way every day. Uh, but also, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to like think. Speaking of reimagination, I don't know how to reimagine. You know, uh, ourselves as writers uh, without this context of constant failure. Um, personally, it also drives me. To know that I failed, so I like if you know if something's mm -hmm. not working out, the next day, you know, it's a good excuse for me to like put me into shape and think that oh, you did not do this last week as you had intended to. You have failed, and now it's your time to make up for it. So it works for me that kind of attitude, but it may not. It might be detrimental to a lot of other people, and I don't know how to imagine that. But I do know that one of the things that I I am forgiving myself for is not being productive enough during this pandemic. Mm. Um, I remember there was this whole, you know, when it started, everybody was like, Shakespeare wrote King Lear during the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. So should you. Yeah. Uh, and it's like, yeah, but Shakespeare wasn't part of a crumbling capitalist ecosystem. Like he was doing what he was doing. I didn't know what he was doing. I, I you know, whatever. And I, I'm thinking about like the pressures of having to perform and having to be productive. And I'm forgiving myself when on an evening, I just can't bring myself to write anything. I just want to sit and watch like the same TV show I've watched five times before because <laughs> I'm a master at rewatching things. And it's okay if I want to, you know, uh, sit, I don't want to read a new book, but I want to read the same book I've read 10 times because there's something about that universe that is very appealing to me right now. Uh, so I just think that, you know, speaking of this, since this is the truth to power show, a lot of us within this current ecosystem are incredibly powerless. Uh, and being as powerless as we are, whatever we do to make ourselves feel better, and if you know writing's a part of it and not writing is a part of it, I think it's okay. So even though not writing right now, not writing King Lear or something worthy of that uh, distinction. Um, may feel like a personal failure in the moment and later on you know a lot of us are going to kick ourselves and think you had all that time you know to get things done and you didn't do it and now you're back at work and you know but I, I i think that whatever we can do to help ourselves i guess right now that's what i'm focused on uh you know i'm trying to be happy that's that's my that's my whatever it takes if writing is what it takes then so be it but you know well, I, I always think that watching uh, even the same television show or reading the same book again, for a writer, that's just research. That's just professional development. You know, when you watch something 
many times actually you start to see the tricks and the structural sleight of hand that make it work. You know, why is this character so compelling? Why, do, why is this the solution to the pro plot that feels right? Or why does that turn of phrase capture it so well? And, and um, I remember when I was in, in, in grad school, an agent came to talk to all of us eager writers and, and uh, he said, uh, with all the issues you're, you're addressing, we were all facing, because playwriting is really, really hard, because it's a collaborative, to be really true, it's a collaborative piece. So you have to win to even get into the room to do your work. Um, and he, what he said, which has made enormous sense, is you have to, when you have a win, when something positive happens, really, really acknowledge and celebrate that because it's going to be 5% of what you do is going to result in that. And so you can, you know, keep yourself going by celebrating the things that go well, even if that means the win is that today's writing went well. It wasn't that you sold something or that something's getting produced, but the writing went well, celebrate that. And then if you get productions, if you get publications, then uh, that's all the better. Uh, it's extremely, it's a really, I, I think the, the, for artists, it's the, the cruciform of self-care, which has become a big social movement right now, self-compassion, self-care. Um, artists in many ways need this more than anyone because that is your instrument in a lot of ways that you're, you're building and feeding through these kinds of efforts because it is so hard. It, despite the proliferation of outlets in poetry and you know, with online presses, there's so much more than there used to be. The gatekeepers have do not own everything like they used to. Um, still, there's also a proliferation of writers. And there was, mm -hmm. so there's a lot of work going on right now and it's wonderful, but it takes a lot of care of oneself to be part of that. Ecosystem. Absolutely, and to also uh, understand what self-care means to you outside of this like very consumer-driven neoliberal context in which you know this industry has set itself up, right? You know, like buy this fifty-dollar eye cream because this is self-care for your eye, and it's like, oh yeah, like yes, I want my eyes to feel good. Yes, all of that is true, but I don't want to spend fifty dollars. But at the end of the day, you know, all of that is not making me feel as nice. Uh, you know, there are practices, and there is. Like, I don't know what that means right now. I know that every time I write, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at celebrating efforts right now and not, yes. you know, every time I write a poem, I'm just like, this poem sucks, but this is also the first poem I wrote in like a month. So there's something to it, you know, I will revise it, I will try to make it better. But for now, you know, whatever instinct or whatever impulse that brought this poem to me, I acknowledge that uh, and I'm happy about it and I'm going to celebrate it with some ice cream and some like, you know, music and TV and, you know, just, you know, laze around for, exactly. use that as an excuse <laughs> to slack around for an hour. <laughs> yeah, I just want to say that also it's so important for us as a communities, for our communities to not feel disempowered that the ways in which we give up our power when we are, we're told, oh, this is the product that's going to make you feel good or this is the... The consumerist, consumerist narrative is disrupting our power and that we have to feel in our communities and ourselves that we're, that we're able to, um, that we're doing well, that we're progressing, that not, and have that belief, have that view that we're powerful without um, going out and running after something externally, you know? 
And I think that's mm-hmm. ultimately the truth that will help us, you know, not look for external validation, but rather having that internal sense of, of, of power within ourselves so that we can feel and we can, ex- and that'll kind of perpetuate itself that we'll have more success, we'll have more external validation when we have that internal validation, when we have that internal feeling that we're powerful as in our communities, yeah. Especially now with like, uh, with the pandemic sort of forcing us to shelter in place, uh, when, uh, you know, when we go out for essential items and then we're starting to understand what essential means and what is essential to us and what yeah. is not. I think that's uh, the idea of there's so many terrible things uh, that have come to fore because of the pandemic. But I like the focus on the word essentials and what, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't it's not just products. It's also people and it's also practices like what are essential practices and people and relationships for you and I think that's a good I guess start off point for any larger self-exploration I think thank you very wise yeah I I hope that uh, what we're learning privately can be conveyed culturally and uh, that there be this kind of recalibration because we all know how unbalanced, I think the biggest uh, sense I had, even in the middle of the before, was how unbalanced our culture had become between income inequality, attention uh, to the wrong things, too much of these things. Um, I, I, I'm a big fan, it's one of my vices of shelter magazines, but I was starting to see homes that I was like, you do not need that fabric on the walls. I don't want to follow any of this anymore. You know, that yeah. it, it had gone so far that it was no longer even interesting. It was just sort of gross. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that became a metaphor of how, how life is playing out in so many places. So just want to I- jump in here and say, this is the Truth to Power show, I'm ready for Brooklyn. You're listening to Independent Listener uh, Supported Radio. Um, if you'd like to listen to uh, Ready for Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please consider downloading our free mobile app for iPhone or Android, available in the App Store or iPhone or Google Play Store for Android. Uh, please make sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for other um, latest news on new programming and upcoming RFB events. Uh, you can sign up at readyforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Um, Again, uh, you can go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power to find out about our archives of the past episodes. And uh, we have the app that will also have you access to our archives. So thanks so much, guys. We have about like 50 seconds left. Do you want to get some last thoughts? And then we'll, we'll end uh, the, the broadcast. Well, I just hope everybody's washing their hands and, <laughs> you know, reading some good poetry. This is a good time if you can't get anything done to read a few poems and to look at, you know, uh, how other writers have imagined the world in their work or have chose to reimagine the world in their work. I think that's always a fun place. Thank you. Thank you. It was lovely talking to you and good luck in all your work, Maher. Thank you so much. It was lovely talking to you, Bruce and Vijay. This was great. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. All right, guys. So um, tune in next week at 8 a.m. Monday. We also rebroadcast on Thursdays at 9 a.m. So kids who listen to our broadcast, uh, that's when we rebroadcast. Thank you. All right. And-